so actually, I'm going to do a very different structure today from my normal one, uh, which is I'm going to work with some uh, silent practice this morning for people. Um, it, it's uh, And speaking of sort of blowing up structures and tearing down walls, uh, this is the first time that there's been a Dharma and recovery day long, at least led by me, in this hall. So uh, that's... Uh, you know, a, a stage, a step forward in a way. Um, I first proposed to Spirit Rock uh, that they have a Buddhist 12-step class some uh, eight years ago. The first one was in 2003. And, uh, you know, I- even in the Buddhist world uh, at that time, uh, there was some skepticism, as there still is a bit, but not nearly so much, about the idea of uh, I think I think the fundamental fear was that there were going to be these alcoholics and drug addicts <laughs> coming into their pure, holy Buddhist center, soiling it with their addictions, not realizing that we were already here. And, and, uh, so it was too late already. Um, so this is all part of the progression of the gradual uh, taking over the Dharma centers. <laughs> We're changing the name of Spirit Rock to <laughs> Spirit Recovery. <laughs> That's not that. Oh no, there is a Spirit Recovery now. It's a friend of mine has that. Uh, speaking of branding. Um, <laughs> So it's, it's a different week here at Spirit Rock because normally there would be a, um, a silent retreat going on up the hill. Uh, they don't have a lot of day-longs up here because this part of the center is, is devoted to the residential retreats. And right now they're doing some um, cleaning, like a thorough cleaning of the dormitories and things. And, uh, and there's also a big teacher conference on the East Coast, so I think a lot of the teachers are there. So it was an opportunity to do some other things this week. Um, so if you ne- haven't been up here before, uh, you know, past the gates down there, say, you know, do not, what's the Dante's, you know, abandon hope, all those who enter here. Yeah, um, abandon self, all those who enter here, something like that. Um, you know, maybe at lunchtime, take a little walk around, even poke your head into one of the dorms. Um, uh, if you have never done a, a residential retreat here, I hope that just today, being up here will uh, excite your interest in that possibility. It's a wonderful, wonderful place to, to do practice. Uh, so... Uh, Normally, I do kind of encourage people to interact a lot on my day-longs and to, to talk and just be friendly. I uh, sometimes feel that the, the uh, kind of personality of Buddhist centers can be very oppressive. There can be this kind of, oh, we're all supposed to be silent and spiritual and holy, and, and, uh, and there's something phony about that to me because... Um, 
you know, we're, we can be silent and spiritual, and that's great. And we are everything else. And, and if we try to separate out our spirituality from everything else, uh, it can uh, allow us to keep the shadow. Uh, that I, I certainly hung out in Buddhist centers while I was still drinking and using and acting holy when I was at the, at the Dharma Center and then going home and doing what I did. Um, So I think it's important to bring your whole self here. Uh, uh, Nonetheless, I thought that um, just, I guess, because we're in this space and just as a different approach that we would uh, spend a bit of time this morning just doing some silent practice. So we're going to do a sitting and then a walking meditation and then another sitting. And once we start that succession, I'll ask you to just be in silence during that time, which will probably account for about an hour and a half. It's not going to be a whole lot of the day. Uh, But it's a good way for us to kind of settle in with the day. But first I want to spend a little time talking about the themes of this day, uh, which are explicitly not uh, to go through the 12 steps, which is uh, very often what my teaching is. And that's not in any way meant to be a repudiation of the 12 steps, but rather to just um, explore some different uh, approaches to recovery and the recovery process and the, what I really see as a healing process, recovery. Um, and and I, I actually consider all, all spiritual growth to have a, a component of healing, whether we're recovering from addiction or whether we're just recovering from life. Um, so, um, so the theme of the day is the, the fundamental Buddhist teaching, the Four Noble Truths. Um, the Four Noble Truths uh, are, are one teaching that are found in every Buddhist tradition. Many of the traditions uh, have different approaches to uh, the teachings, but uh, they all share this fundamental teaching. And it was the first teaching that the Buddha gave. The, the, the Four Noble Truths can be stated very briefly. Uh, the truth of suffering, the truth of the cause of suffering, the truth of the end of suffering, and the truth of the way to the end of suffering. And that doesn't tell you very much, um, but uh, that's the framework that you can refer back to as we're looking at things today. So I I want to talk first about the truth of suffering. And um, let me begin by uh, reading a little bit of the, this first sutta that the Buddha delivered. This was his first teaching after his enlightenment. And he met up with uh, the five other seekers who he had spent some years with. Uh, and at a certain point, he had, uh, they, they were practicing ascetic practices, extreme ascetic practices. And this was really the story of the Buddha, that he, you know, this is you know, my version of the Buddha as an alcoholic, uh, that, that uh, you know, he was raised in this privileged environment and he was basically partying all the time. And 
then he just kind of got disgusted by that and realized it wasn't working. And so then he went to the opposite extreme, shaved his head, put on these robes, went off and lived in the forest, star practically starved himself to death, did all these extreme, you know, the other extreme, the way we the way we are, the way addicts and alcoholics are, that we go from one extreme to the other. But at a certain point he realized, well, this extreme isn't working either. He said, I'm going to have something to eat. And he was with these five other ascetics who said, oh, well, he's gone soft. So they left him, or he left them, I think, is probably more accurate. And he went and had this kind of breakthrough experience. Uh, we call enlightenment, sitting under the Bodhi tree. And then he came back to them, and as he was approaching them, the story goes that they saw him and they were like, ignore him, ignore him. You know, just pretend he's, he's gone soft, just pretend he's not. But as he approached, it was kind of like his energy or his aura was so powerful that they just kind of were like, they couldn't resist saying, you know, what happened to him? You know, we've got to check this out. So then he gave them this, this discourse. And he uses the term bhikkhus, which is, uh, means monks, but really we can take this more just as meaning anybody who's a, uh, pursuing a, a path, a spiritual path. It says, bhikkhus, these two extremes should not be followed by one who has gone forth into homelessness. So homelessness is again, seeking awakening by letting go of possessions. These two extremes should not be followed by one who has gone forth into homelessness. What two? The pursuit of sensual happiness in sensual pleasures, which is low, vulgar, the way of worldlings, ignoble, unbeneficial. And the pursuit of self-mortification, which is painful, ignoble, unbeneficial. Without veering towards either of these extremes, the Tathagata, that's what the Buddha calls himself, the Tathagata has awakened to the middle way, which gives rise to vision, which gives rise to knowledge, which leads to peace, to direct knowledge, to enlightenment, to nibbana, nirvana. So he starts out by saying, avoid extremes. Such a perfect teaching for people uh, dealing with addiction. We, uh, uh, you know, it's, it obviously we have these extremes of, of uh, using and, and behaviors and uh, process, uh, whether it's extreme use of substances or whether it's trying to use relationships to fix ourselves, whether it's trying to control people or work our way into happiness. So there's that way, which, which he's talking about as the pursuit of sensual pleasures. But there's also the ways that we deprive ourselves. One of the things that uh, Joseph Goldstein points out is that uh, one of the forms of self-mortification. I mean, this is typically, we think we're talking about ascetic practices like not eating and sleeping on the ground or sleeping on a bed of nails or whatever. But 
in our culture, self-mortification very often takes the form of our internal dialogue. How we treat ourselves, how we speak to ourselves, how we think of ourselves, what we think about ourselves. Now, this is another extreme. You'll find in um, uh, the cognitive therapy, they really ask you to look at these kind of extremes of thinking. And this is, uh, becomes much more, you know, it's one thing to, to break down your extremes of behavior, and that's a vital first stage of a recovery process. But to start to notice the extremes of mental behavior. But, uh, and there can be the, the overblown, you know, the, over, the ego, the self-centeredness, and then there can be just the self-hatred. And to find that place in the middle, very difficult, isn't it? It's very difficult to see ourselves right-sized. Talk about this in uh, step seven, uh, humility. Humility, being human, you know, humble, H-U-M, first. I've never really looked at the etymology of those words, but I believe there's a relationship between the words human and humility. If there isn't, it doesn't matter. We can still use it (laughs) because it works. Um, You know, we want to be more, we want to be superhuman. I was at, I went to the movies last night and... uh, and the previews, I was seeing Super 8, so all the previews were all the crazy, uh, you know, super, super, uh, you know, I want to say superstar, but, you know, these superhuman beings that, uh, and powers. And, you know, that's what we want to imagine ourselves like that, on the one hand. And then we want to think of ourselves as just the worst piece of crap. You know? And I always loved the image of, that I learned early in sobriety. I'm... I'm the piece of shit that the world is circling around. You know, the, <laughs> I'm at the, the piece of crap at the center of the universe. <laughs> it really kind of sums it all up. Because we're really neither. We're so not the center of the universe. I mean, this is the story of human understanding, uh, right, of cosmology. Star, this, is, this is, you know, in the... In, uh, ancient cultures, there was the belief that the earth was the center of the universe. It's very typical human thinking, so it's not just alcoholic, right? We don't know where we are. You know, where is the center of the universe? That's a good question. Not, not us. We're, and, and yet, then, to trivialize ourselves and think of ourselves, well, I'm just a tiny grain of sand in the vast cosmos of meaninglessness. You know, all of a sudden, Jean-Paul Sartre comes to mind. You know. No exit. Oh. Much more comfortable to be in one of those extremes. I think it, it, uh, the thing about those extremes is that they're all about ego. Because even when I'm the little piece of crap, I'm like the crappiest crap, you know? <laughs> uh, it makes me special. Uh, a lot of depression and anxiety are expressions of these ego, ego views. 
So let me read what the Buddha says about the first noble truth. Uh, This is the noble truth of suffering. Birth is suffering. Aging is suffering. Illness is suffering. Death is suffering. Union with what is displeasing is suffering. Separation from what is pleasing is suffering. Not to get what one wants is suffering. In brief, the five aggregates subject to clinging are suffering. All the things that we hold to cling on to. And then he goes on to say that the appropriate response to this, to this truth, is that it should be fully understood. This is where I think we run into a problem. We can all see suffering. It's pretty obvious. But do we want to understand it? Do we want to even look at it? Do we want to be aware of it? This is where addiction comes from. We know we're suffering, but we don't want to feel it. So then we set out on our journey to avoid it. I mean, our starting point is the same starting point that the Buddha started with on his spiritual path. His quest was to end suffering. His quest was not to embrace suffering and to enjoy it. No. I mean, he started out saying, why is there this suffering and how can I get past it? It's the same thing we say to ourselves when we pick up our first drink. Well, probably our second drink. (laughs) The first drink, we don't realize what's going to happen. How can I get rid of suffering? Another one of these will do. <laughs> so right then we've <laughs> bridged off from wisdom. And we're, we're acting on ig- what's called ignorance in Buddhism, a, a misunderstanding. So this critical point that the Buddha starts his teachings with is to understand suffering. And wow, is that bad marketing. I mean, that is not a way to get people to follow you. I'm going to, first thing I want you to do, pay attention to your suffering. Oh, could we do something else first? Couldn't we have a little dancing, maybe? Something. Maybe a nice meal? No, but he's saying, you're not going to get anywhere. You're not going to figure anything out until you see the problem. He said, the problem is suffering. That's what he's defining as the problem of existence. is all the ways that it's difficult and uncomfortable. And you're going to have to, I'll say, change your relationship to that. Change it from the attitude of don't like it, want to avoid it, as being your auto-response to that which doesn't mean that it becomes love it, want to embrace it. Because that's another extreme. I mean, that's anorexia. That's self-mutilation. That's masochism. Wanting suffering. 
Again, it's a middle way. How to be in relation to suffering without running from it and without running toward it, just being with it. That's a lot of what the meditation practice is about. We come in to a meditation hall, we close our eyes and we just sit. We don't do anything. We don't try to change anything. Not, well, not externally. And we try to be very careful about the way we try to change things internally. This is kind of the the practice, the challenge of practice. So we can say that uh, the first noble truth is very much the uh, beginning of recovery. Our, when we're dealing with an addiction, until we see it clearly, until we fully understand it, we don't do anything about it. We don't start to change. We don't let go because we don't realize that that's the problem. If we really realized it was the problem, we, we'd be able to let go. But this is the essence of denial, that we don't see. We think of, and you know, I've heard many people say in meetings that, well, in the beginning, alcohol was the solution, or drugs were the solution. Um, that uh, they were the, the solution that we could come up with that was the best we could do, really, uh, for the angst or the suffering that we experienced in our lives. But eventually they become the problem. And, and so uh, for a long time, we're thinking that the problem is over here, not seeing that gradually the, the addiction, and I'm, I'm trying to keep that very broad because I know everybody here isn't just an alcoholic or addict. It could be food, could be gambling, could be um, one of the process addictions. That that's what's growing up and that's becoming the problem that's actually overwhelming uh, the other problems, so that uh, it takes this turning towards and seeing clearly, understanding that to even begin the process of recovery. And at that point, you have the, now you have the opportunity to deal with the problems that made you drink in the first place, which is why recovery is a process and, and a challenging process and why so many people relapse because stopping drinking and using doesn't take, take away life and the problems that, and the internal and external problems that triggered the using in the first place. And that's why in the 12 steps, there's only one step that deals with stopping and then there's 11 that deal with living, with being stopped. Uh, on Friday night, uh, I had my Dharma and recovery class down the hill and was talking a lot about motivation. And, and this has been uh, sort of a theme for me lately because I, you know, I, I teach at a couple of uh, treatment centers in the area where I go once or twice a month. And I, I just give a little workshop on mindfulness and recovery and you know, the steps and Buddhist stuff. And it's very, very... Um, uh, organic kind of the way I teach. It's not a, uh, very structured. But um, one of the things that I, I find is that most of the people in these treatment centers have been in other treatment centers and that there have been, been a lot of relapse. And I, 
I'm always curious about what it is that uh, makes it difficult for people to stay sober or to stay clean. And, um, and certainly there's a myriad of factors and, and, um, and it's, as I say, that's what all the, the other 11 steps are about, uh, is trying to uh, hold on to that, that recovery. But somehow, it's, and this may be a simplification, but it seems to me that at the, the, the core of why somebody would relapse has to be motivation to some extent. How motivated are, are we? How strong is our commitment? How strong is our belief that this doesn't work anymore? <laughs> uh, how... how uh, Clearly, have we seen our own suffering through addiction? How clearly have we seen the connection between our behavior and our suffering, between our addiction and our suffering? And that, that seems to me that that's what the first step is trying to get across. The step one says we admitted we were powerless over drugs or alcohol or food. The reason it's saying, using the word powerless is a very extreme word, and I don't think it's all necessarily the most accurate word, but I think it's trying to really get your attention that this doesn't work. You know, if you read some of the history of the early history of AA, the, when uh, Bill and Bob would go to... to talk to a new prospect, like they would get like a call from his wife or something. It usually it was guys in those days. The wife would call and say, you know, my husband's got this drinking problem. And, and they'd say, well, call us when he's at the end of a bender. <laughs> and then they would go and visit him while he was hungover in a wreck because they were trying to show him that it didn't, they were trying to hit him at a point when he was going to get really motivated, like, this doesn't work anymore. You know, this is really screwing me up. Because, you know, a few days later, you're kind of back on your feet and the hangovers in the past, and you start to think, oh, you know, I wasn't so bad, you know. <laughs> and, and this is what happens to people. A few years, I mean, you can be, you know, all we know of the stories, and maybe you are one of the stories, five years, ten years. Uh, you know, maybe it wasn't that bad. Maybe I could do it again. So that starting point, that motivation, the strength of our clarity about the suffering of our addiction, and not just the suffering itself, but the process, understanding the process that causes the suffering and how that unfolds in a lawful way, you know, in a karmic way, that if you are an addict or an alcoholic, and I, I, use, I, I use the word addict to also mean alcoholic. So I'll just say, if you are an addict, then you have karmically conditioned yourself to respond in certain ways to certain experiences. The taste of alcohol, the feeling of the smoke going into the lungs, 
the feeling of the needle breaking the skin, the feeling of the pill starting to take effect, triggers a whole series of events. And, that, and in fact, a whole series of events comes before that, which starts with thought and emotion. There's a feeling, there's a thought, I want. And we see that there's this unfolding. And we've habituated ourselves. That's what addiction is. It's a habit. We've habituated ourselves to follow these triggers, these thoughts and feelings, in this particular way throughout, to play out this behavior. Now that's karma. The way karma works is if you do something over and over in the same way, it gets embedded into a habit pattern. And this actually has neurological effects, right? It has your, your brain starts to just fall into this track. This is what I do. This is when I feel like this. When I think like this, then I do this. When I take that, then I do this. And to break that, we have to see that we can't follow that first energy, that first thought or feeling. We, that, that's where we have to start to catch it. It's too late when you've taken the drug. It's too late, in fact, when you've got, I think it's too late when you've gotten to the point of obsession where the craving has just taken over. You might as well, you know, just, you're going to probably play it out. Uh, you know, people say, oh, we'll call your sponsor, but really, who does that? <laughs> At that point, very few people. So it's understanding this process and seeing the suffering as it unfolds in this way is how we motivate ourselves and deeply embed another, we could say opposite, but maybe not opposite, but another response to that thought and that feeling, that initial craving. Oh! This leads to suffering if I follow this. And we see it. And then we make another choice then. And that's the moment when we really have the opportunity to choose. Later on in the process, you may become powerless. But at that first moment, when the thought comes, oh, you know, maybe I could still drink. You know, if you have reconditioned yourself, created another kind of karma, what comes up is, forget about it, you know. No, I can't do that. I know, because you know, you've played out, and your, your mind goes, oh, right, there's the house of cards, or the dominoes. That's how it's going to play out. I know how this story goes, and it's not going to work. Got to be motivated, though. Got to really understand that. And that's why Coming back to the truth of suffering. Suffering needs to be understood. Not just suffering itself, but the process of suffering. So one of the things that we do in places like Spirit Rock and at home when we're meditating, wherever we are when we're meditating, is that we watch this process unfold. And we intervene. And this process, and what we discover is that this addictive process actually plays out in very subtle ways in meditation. 
And it has nothing to do with being an addict. Anybody who's ever meditated has had to go through this process, which is that you sit and the mind gets drawn to a pleasurable thought. And instead of staying in the present moment and staying with the breath, the mind starts to follow its habitual way of drifting off into pleasant or unpleasant, but still, again, these kind of... uh, you know, it could be into sensual pleasure thoughts or self-mortification thoughts. But either one is just creating more ego, more attachment, and is not being present. So we see this, uh, what I'm calling addictive process, play out on just a very subtle mental level. So that seems like enough to say for now. So um, perhaps let's just, uh, what I want to do now is say right now we're going to start our silence, okay? And, um, but because we've been sitting here for a little while, uh, before we do a period of meditation, let's just, people, you can stand up and Stretch a little bit. If you need to use the restroom, do that very quickly. And then we'll start the sitting. And if you'll remain in silence. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.